Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushina Hantaraja, and I'm joined today by our senior football correspondent, Melissa Reddy. And a debut for our sports news correspondent, Jack Dimonezes. Uh, both of you, welcome. And it's been another international break in the books, all done and dusted. Just another 24 or 25, sorry, more days to go until the next one, though. So you won't be having to wait too long. Um, England beat Wales and then Belgium, but succumbed to Denmark with Harry Maguire and Rhys James after the final whistle for the latter both seeing red cards. It feels like these three games have caused more problems than they have solved for Gareth Southgate, who had a great deal of credit coming into this uh, international break and, in the eyes of some, has uh, has left with a lot less. Um, some would argue that the team is regressing with Southgate infatuated with this three-of-the-back system. Jack, as it's your first time on the pod, we're going to start with you. Um, the results have largely been good for Southgate, though obviously the performances haven't quite inspired even over the last week alone what have you made of the of the current situation situation um well hello and th- thanks for uh, getting me on finally i'm off the bench um <laughs> I, i'm still still largely pro southgate if only for the results um we all know that in football results is business really uh we, we can't complain with two semi-final appearances in two major tournaments and he was given that job for a reason and I think if you look at the the players he's working with, you know, a, a week after, or not even a week, a few days after beating Belgium, the number one ranked team in in the world, albeit probably not the world's best team, you, you can't really complain with that. What what I would complain about is the disciplinary issues. So I, I don't really feel that the two can cause one to go against the other. That they're, they're two very separate issues. The the, the results. I'm happy with the results. You can't suddenly turn your back on him. And there's bookies today that are already pushing uh, who the next England manager is going to be. Um, I, I just find that a bit premature and a bit ridiculous, really. You, you can't get rid of him because of a loss, albeit with 10 men during the game, nine men after the game had finished, which is a bit baffling in itself. But you can't you can't just use that and then just hit him with a hammer when he, he's delivered what he's had to deliver. If If England don't go and make... The, the Nations League uh, knockout stages. Is, is that a big deal? But probably not. We, we saw the fact that the last Nations League, the inaugural one, it didn't really count for a lot once it, it got done and dusted, did it? So it's, it's all building towards the Euros. What I think he's he's got more concern about is the disciplinary issues that are refusing to go away. Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you. But um, Melissa, just to bring you into the conversation now, um, I gather that you're not quite as supportive of um, of Southgate's me, well, certainly Southgate's ways um, over the last 18 months. I think that the difficulty for me is that everything that made Gareth Southgate so good for this job and 
the changes that he affected, as we saw leading up to the World Cup, where the England team was so relatable, um, the nation fell in love with them again, and that was even before the performances and reaching the semifinals. It was this culture that was fostered around the team where they felt um, accessible again, um, and there was really a growing sense of you could believe in this team and that has been undone over recent months with obviously the breaking of lockdown restrictions, a lot of off pitch issues that have been happening as we've seen with Harry Maguire and stuff. And I think from the onset in a tactical sense, no one was would have said Gareth Southgate is the answer for England, you know, in that regard. And so it was everything else that he added around that, that you could really think he's handled situations quite well. He's made an impact in all the areas that there have needed to be an impact made. Remember the circus that used to follow the England national team around, you know, with the wags and just with the with the negativity and endless toxic cycle of, of reporting, that all was removed. You could tell the players had a freedom, that they really enjoyed their co- each other's company and all that. And like I said, what we've seen in recent months, and I, I saw him having a discussion about it yesterday post-match where he said, the team have put themselves in this situation where people are questioning if they if they're as committed as can be and whether they're the right group because of their own actions um and i think if people are questioning whether he's got a hold of of the group in a disciplinary sense and stuff then that's an issue because tactically no one would have seen him as the answer Yeah, it's interesting because Mark Critchley, our Northern Football correspondent, wrote a piece uh, during the week about how you could legitimately say that this is an England golden generation, as it were. Um, And and certainly from the outside, it seemed, as as you mentioned, with regards to the goodwill of the World Cup, it seemed like Southgate was the right man for that role. Um, Do you, Melissa, get a sense then that this might be... I don't want to say a waste of a golden generation, but do you feel like Southgate isn't utilising this golden generation, put it that way, um, as well as he should be? It feels a bit risk-averse at the moment, conservative and pragmatic, which is not always a bad thing. But I think when you look at the makeup of the England squad and where all the great talent lies, it is in you know, the offensive abilities. It is in that freedom there's a few renegades in there and obviously people have been focusing on Jack Grealish and the non-use of him or limited use of him and and the mistrust there seems to be around him but I think it's it's wider than that I think you see it um, all through the pitch where it is safety first and I don't think that that's the best option for this group I don't like the term golden generation because, you know, players often, they're the ones that suffer with that tag. If it doesn't, you know, if it's not fulfilled, um, if they're too hyped up. But this is definitely, definitely the talent pool England have 
is incredible. And when you look at what some of these players are doing for their clubs, whether that be here in England or abroad, you know, Sancho with Borussia Dortmund, for example, it's it's staggering. These are some of the best young players in world football that he he has to work with. And Grealish's performance against Liverpool was one of the best individual. I know Liverpool were terrible on the day and stuff, but you still have to make it work. You still have to make the right decisions. Um, it was one of the best individual displays I've seen for a very long time. So I can understand why people are frustrated by the misuse of him particularly, but I think it is a lot deeper than that. One one thing that I think we're probably all agree on is that Southgate hasn't really changed his ways. And I think the players themselves have to do a lot of maturing because if you look at the ways he's been let down, there's a lot of new players that are coming through with this talent. But we look at the contrast here of, again, Marcus Rashford is in the headlines today for the right reasons. He's continuing his drive with trying to get rid of child uh, child food poverty. He's also conducting himself in a way that he's able to focus on his football when he's on the pitch and he handles his business when he's off the pitch. We've seen the younger players and Rashford, now that Rashford is an established part of this squad, that they're not following that lead. There's a lot of people that have fallen foul of disciplinary protocols off the pitch surrounding coronavirus. And because of the way that coronavirus is playing out uh, in, in everyday life, the public are going to be much less forgiving in, in terms of any player that falls foul of that. There's too many players now that are falling foul of that. And now that's spreading around the squad. We, we see that with Reese James last night. Talking yourself into a red card after the game is done is unforgivable. And especially when it comes to Southgate's ways, he, he's really going to dislike that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gave him a bit of a personal dressing down after that because it's exactly what he doesn't want to see from his young players. And he's just come off a month of just dealing with problem after problem in which Phil Foden, Mason Greenwood, Tammy Abraham, Ben Chilwell and Sancho have all fallen foul of his expectations. That That's too many. That, that That's now bordering on more than his, his first 11. So how how's he meant to deal with that if they're continuously letting him down? At what point, though, do we attribute the two things to, A, how unusual situations are with the global pandemic and the fact that we're playing international football at all, which I suppose is a completely different point entirely, but also just to square it with the fact that, you know, the, these are these are professional footballers who, who know, uh, you know, the standards they need to set. This isn't anything particularly unusual. At what point do we throw the, not the blame, but I suppose we, we look at the players and think, look, you've got to be doing better as individuals. You don't, you shouldn't need someone to be telling you that, you know, having gone through all these protocols, having been tested constantly, knowing what the rest of the country and what the rest of the world is going through with, with regards to these protocols, that you should, all you need to do is fall in line. Everything is being given to you to fall in line and make you as comfortable as possible. I feel that, we still need to remember they are in a, a privileged position, albeit one that is very demanding. Uh, it, it's not easy to go into these these camps where you can't go into the outside world, as we can at the moment. If, as long as you're not in a, a lockdown area, we, we still have a, a lot of open doors in terms of normal life, which they don't because they've got to protect themselves, protect their clubs and their teams. And we've seen how quickly, uh, if the virus gets within one of these bubbles, 
it can spread so quickly that suddenly international football gone, Premier League football could be at risk. So they do have to be really careful, but no one is forcing them to play for England. That They play for England because, one, they are recognised, and two, because they want to. And the job of being an England international is to put smiles on faces of England fans. That They want to see their country doing well. They want to see people looking like they're having fun while doing it. And if you're continuously falling foul of those expectations, the English public is going to lose patience with that, I'm afraid. And because no one's forcing them to be there, if it does get too hard, they're able to say to Southgate that, you know, maybe leave them out of this one, just that they could, we've seen in the past how easy it is just to leave a player out, say they need a break or a rest and that's it done and dusted and they move on. But, if they if they're willing to go into these environments within these camps, then they've got to live up to those expectations and those demands that are being set. Otherwise, there's no point in being there. Yeah, well, while the um, international scene was, uh, well, I suppose while that was ticking over domestically, there were some issues of, uh, well, I suppose there's some issues of English football's own really, as uh, Project Big Picture came, I suppose what over the weekend, kind of dropped into our lives at the start of the week, and then on Wednesday was. I suppose thrown out, uh, thrown out the window. Yet still, with some of those ideas um, around and having permeated the minds of people within English football, specifically the EFL and the Premier League. Melissa, what have you made of the fast developing situation around the efforts of Liverpool and Manchester United to reshape English football? It was obviously a shock to everyone. I think when we saw the level of detail put into the proposal in terms of the bailouts, but also restructuring of TV money. There seemed to have been a lot of time, energy, thought into all of it. And I think no matter how much of positivity you could draw from that document, and I think one of the things it states was that a restructure of English football the way it's governed and, and run and the way prize money and stuff is is sort of dished out has to change. So with all that, you know, the, the money being given to DFA uh, for infrastructure and grassroots, all that was really good. But no matter how much you nodded in agreement with that, the special voting rights and the real consolidation of power to the big six, just did not sit well whatsoever. And it's always interesting getting different viewpoints of stuff. We sat in on a Zoom call with representatives from the EFL, from different clubs, and the way they had seen the proposal. So, you know, while the rest of us are, are sitting there and flagging this the special voting rights as an absolute evil and something we can't look past. They were actually the opposite. They were looking at immediate survival, but also how in the long term it could help them be more sustainable. Um, And one of the things they were all very unified in is that the Premier League and the government and the FA have had the longest time, they've had all these months to come up with proposals. And 
they have put nothing anywhere as concrete, anywhere near as sustainable. And um, one of the words they used as well was palatable um, in, in front of clubs. And the only, I think the overall impression I got from them was that they felt that even if Project Big Picture wasn't passed, as we know it, it won't be, that it forces a conversation now. It makes it absolutely non-negotiable that there needs to be a reset of English football and that there needs to be a a redistribution of of, uh, the broadcasting money in a better sense and that the health of the entire pyramid needs to be looked at. Jack, you covered the... um you know you've been across the news basically as our sports news editor um what did you make of i suppose this in terms of was it a a did you see it as a brazen power grab or yeah i suppose what were your views on it uh it it definitely looks that way um from whatever angle you come from it it looks that way uh as soon as it came out on sunday i mean it it ruined a a large number of sunday afternoons for people in sport (laughs) news department so that was fun and it's been every day since and i think the fallout since that uh kind of broke is we are seeing that every single club every single person involved in these talks still has their own personal interests uh at the forefront of their thinking which it it would have been refreshing to get away from from that and then kind of as melissa explained there we're, we're seeing there's trying to be a plan of coming together to reset English football and and help everyone. But I just don't think that we're there yet. I don't think people are going to um, look at it as they're willing to give up what they've got in in terms of looking after smaller clubs when we're seeing this brazen move to, to kind of take control of English football. I think if you're the football association, how can you look at these plans and, and think, yeah, okay, we'll give those the green light when basically the, the big six businesses, not just the big six clubs, their businesses, would take control of the sport. Um, we're now seeing today, it's developing further, that maybe the FA actually had a bigger hand in this. It's being, it's just being tossed and turned and thrown about to everyone's to blame, from the EFL to the Premier League to the FA. And I'm quite impressed that they haven't found a way to blame the players yet, but I'm pretty sure we'll get there eventually. <laughs> Um, what one thing that I, I I do fear is that from the meeting yesterday between the Premier League clubs, both Liverpool and Manchester United, who have been very very prominent in these talks, stayed quiet, and I'm led to believe that they're quite happy with how it's it's playing out because they know it's not going to wait going to go away in the future. That they're now going to discuss this as a complete league, but we will get something close to project big picture it just depends on that how much power can they grab and how much can the rest of afford to give up but you look at the, the football league and they're being squeezed now that they were backing these this grand plan that had a 250 million pound investment um basically they, they were going to forward on the money that they would receive in this 25 percent guaranteed tv revenue so it's, it's not additional but it's it's money that's going to save them what they've now been presented with is an offer which has not yet been accepted that's basically 50 million pounds on top of what they've already been forwarded so that that's a considerable reduction of what they were hoping for so how long can they hold out for can they reject that offer to then hope they get more money to protect 
the championship, League One and League Two. This is just for League One and League Two at the moment. And there's going to come a point where they run out of time and they either have to take it or they, it's not enough and we're going to lose clubs. So I, I think we're just seeing a point where everyone's still got their own interests at, at the forefront of what they, they need to do in the coming weeks. And there's going to come a, a pinch point where that can no longer happen because clubs are going to go bust if that doesn't, if that doesn't get resolved. This was um, one of the the annoyances from the League One and League Two clubs that after all these months where they laid bare how much money they were losing, how much money they require to to survive just to exist, um, let alone anything else, that the offer on the table was only ever um, thirty million pounds was as far as it got to. So, you know, now there's talk of the 30 million uh, pounds plus the 20 million pounds, which is the 50 million pounds you talk about. But again, that doesn't cover the amount of money they require to be sustainable in the short term, let alone the long term. Again, the other issue they have is that it's just a pull to swallow now. It's, It's a remedy for right now, but there is no thought beyond you know, what happens next? How do they skip from just existing to actually being a sustainable model that helps their communities and stuff thrive? Um, And I think that's why there was such a, obviously the money and the 25% of, of upcoming broadcast deals and all of that looked very, very good to EFL clubs, but they we're interested in a proper reset and a proper restructure. And Project Big Picture was the only one so far that dealt with everything that they feel is broken beyond the pyramid. And the interesting thing from their perspective is, you know, when we were saying to them, do you really want to accept this deal when you're giving six clubs the power to design English football in whichever way they want going forward. And they said, well, those six clubs pretty much already dictate everything. This is just, uh, you know, ratifying it. But if we're being honest with ourselves, they were saying that it is already the way English football works at the moment. At, At least in this essence, there's a safety net for clubs. There's a thought process about the future. Now, I think... You know, self-interest was something that Jack mentioned in football, as it ever was, there will be self-interest from every party. And we're currently, unfortunately, now in the state of spin where the people pro this deal and the people hugely against this deal will be coming out, you know, with claims and counterclaims and we'll get more revelations as we've seen um, regarding the the FA's influence and, and what they were willing to discuss. But in April, The Independent did a series of investigations actually about the state of English football. Um, you know, we had a, a deep dive that Critch did on the championship and how it's the worst run league in the world in terms of in terms of people not spending um, what they make and overshooting because of the the evil parachute payments and all that stuff. But 
I'd also spoken to financial experts to take a wide lens view of the pyramid and clubs going bust, you know, the power being concentrated at the top. And they had all said that a reset is absolutely necessary, that English football will cease to exist the way we know it if there was not a reset that included getting rid of the parachute payments and stuff. And all the experts also agreed on two fundamental things that they didn't think it would happen because there is too much self-interest involved. So if some clubs go to the wall, but the rest still thrive and the product, you know, still garners all these great big broadcasting deals, then no one really cares. But the other thing they said was for it to be successful, it actually needs to be underwritten by government policy. English football needs like an independent governance body because as it is at the moment, we talk about uh, self-interest from clubs, but the leagues all have their own self-interests anyway and their own demons in terms of organizational structures and stuff. And when we look at the government's involvement in all of this or non-involvement, they're only ever ready to point fingers and to use football as a mechanism to you know, promote their own agendas and, and whatever they're looking to sling. As we saw at the outset of COVID where they were speaking about you know, how much money players make and why aren't players you know, paying the salaries of other staff at clubs and stuff. And I thought it was absolutely ridiculous to hear Oliver Darden say a fan-led review of, of football will happen if if a way forward cannot be worked out of this. The government campaigned on that fan-led review and now they're holding it as a threat. Nothing has been commissioned with regards to it at all. We don't even know the parameter parameters for what the review will consist of or how it would work or anything like that but now they're keen to use it as a threat well it certainly certainly seems this is going to run and run and this certainly won't be the last time that we've seen a proposal of this sort being brought to the table that's enough for from us for part one join us after the break for the rest of the indie football podcast hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to part two of this indie football podcast. And the next thing we're going to talk about is the drive to get fans back in the state into stadiums, which has been, I suppose, tempered somewhat by this tiered lockdown being introduced across the country. 
Um, there still remains that push to get fans back in stadiums. And last week, the leagues were lobbying the government to allow them to do so, especially when there were all these photos coming out of people at cinemas and um, various different theatres uh, sat next to each other in an enclosed space, um, especially kind of rammed home by the fact that across Europe, certain leagues have been able to introduce fans back into stadiums, such as the Bundesliga in Germany. Uh, the Independence chief football writer, Miguel Delaney, wrote a piece on the subject. It's optics, not facts. Football pushes back in the fight against government to let fans return to matches. Melissa, um, what are your views on the government insistence that no return is better than a seemingly feasibly, feasible layered and adaptable approach to bring fans back safely into stadiums? It made no sense for the last few months or since the, sta- uh, since the season restarted that there haven't been fans allowed in given the successful pilot um occasions that we've had especially with Brighton with their doctor doing a whole lot of research into it and stuff and seeing that it had absolutely no effect on transmission in the area we've had clubs um speaking to medical experts um you know doing lengthy conversations with people involved in the NHS and stuff, with public transport, with local authorities to see how they could make sure there wasn't any strain on public transport and the police services and all that stuff. A a tremendous amount of, of homework has gone into this, obviously for financial reasons, because match day income is massive revenue to the clubs. But beyond that, it just feels soulless and so weird I mean we're all privileged to be able to be one of the few people in a stadium going to cover a game so I always feel a bit guilty for saying that it's not an enjoyable experience but it really isn't it it it's so so surgical and it feels like a visit to the hospital at times because of the, the the measures, you know, taken all the admin you do when you getting in and just the feel of how cold and, I don't know, icy and detached everything is. But what struck me about all of this is the clubs have done a lot more research into this than the government because the government have been surprised when figures have been put forward to them about how few fans actually travel by public transport to games. Um, And also, we were getting told that it was safe to go and watch football games at a pub. We were told it was safe to go and watch football games at a cinema. In fact, we were told to go and enjoy ourselves Um, at the cinema watching these games and as one of the officials from the FA told me how do the government think these people are getting to and from the pubs and the cinemas and also do they think they're just going to the cinema and going home or just going to the pub to watch the football match and then leaving because everything that has been you know brought up about fans the fact that they won't just go to the match that they might go to a pub well they're already at the pub watching the games there that are being provided on TV. You know, from the cinema, you probably will go to the restaurant for a meal or, or um, to the pub. And public transport is being used for all of that. Now, as you say, with the tiered lockdowns and stuff, it makes it more difficult. But when these conversations were taking place at the start of the season and then throughout, 
it it made absolutely no sense whatsoever, especially with some of the indoor activities we've seen going on, you know, ballet and um, other sort of art shows. And it definitely is a classism issue. I don't think you can cut around that. But the other thing is, um, while clubs have done a lot of talking with their counterpart counterparts in Germany, it doesn't seem like the government have been willing to engage in a roadmap with Germany and the Bundesliga to see how they've done things, which is, again, unsurprising. Yeah, Jack, just to bring you in here, um, Manchester United are currently reimbursing supporters for every game that, that, that doesn't have crowds. Well, the government has given its word that the EFL clubs will not go bust over a continued lack of matchday revenue. Um, just to quote Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden here, no EFL club will go bust. I've received reassurances that that will not be allowed to happen. Um, you know, it, it's great to hear that. It's great to hear that unequivocally and um, so straight, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, Jack, where, where do you stand with this? Because I suppose it's the one thing that we can relate to because it's affecting our everyday lives in terms yeah. of what we can and can't do during these tiers and with London about to go into uh, tier two on the weekend it's it's you know certainly for those of us that live here we can um, we're about to see it in full effect um kind of what is your view on um on I suppose how how these two two sides are working really you know the public advice and then football the the interesting thing is I was I was covering uh Mr Dowden's appearance at the DCMS select committee and that raised one or two eyebrows uh, when he said no EFL club will go bust, particularly amongst the EFL clubs that are in very real danger of going bust. This was news to them. So I, I think uh, that might have been more hot air out of the government who, who do that really well. But that's, for, that's a different matter. Um, I I've kind of feel that it's, it's a little bit of an issue now. I mean, if we were talking about the October 1st return, I, I kind of feel like that could have gone ahead because I was one of the lucky ones that was able to go to uh, a pilot event where fans were back, albeit it was in Rugby Union, but it was in the heart of London um, at the Twickenham Stoop. We were advised to to drive there, so nearly all fans drove. Uh, there was enough car parking because there wasn't a lot of fans because it was being limited. So this is exactly what will happen at uh, football clubs if, if this was to go through you will get fans who drive because they can drive because the provision is there for them to do that this completely removes the issues that straight away when they're quizzed on it government officials go back to about the the transport to the stadium well that can be easily resolved so what's the next problem and that hasn't been an explanation now we're, we're two weeks further on and the, the issue is now we're going into these tightened restrictions and the, the coronavirus numbers are much worse and I I now don't really feel comfortable with certainly the view of people going back to a stadium while we're being told to not to mix households and to we're going back into some sort of form of lockdown looking against what's going on in the arts and cultural world well those those pictures from the palladium that was just unacceptable and it, it hurt to see that Arsene Wenger one of our own was was part of that but it wasn't his fault was it he doesn't 
set the numbers on who's in there, but that that was just completely unacceptable in in the current climate. So, although that's been used to to back the let's let fans in campaign, I kind of feel that actually neither should be happening at the moment. If we're if we're closing pubs, we're closing restaurants, and we're telling households not to mix. It's quite a scary time again when you're almost either halfway through the second wave or on the crest of a second wave. I, I don't feel comfortable with, with that anymore. And I just kind of think, okay, let's let's kind of get through what could be ahead because we're, we're not even in winter yet. There, there could be quite a lot of trouble ahead. Um, let's maybe put the, the fans on the back burner. Let's try resolve the the issues that are, are there in terms of let's protect the clubs, let's get them financially stable. And once it's safe, let's get fans back. The, the plans are there. All the clubs have invested, as Melissa said, they've invested so well in these uh, detailed safety protocols that will be in place from the minute they're allowed to. And having been at a, a game where fans are back, it's it's very well um, governed that they look after your safety. They look after everything from what time you can enter a stadium to who's bringing you your food and drink because you're not allowed to go to the concourse to get it. So they've all developed apps that enable that. You know, it's now like being at a, a Weatherspoons or O'Neill's pub where you've got somebody serving you. You don't even need to leave the table anymore. So it, there's a lot of thought that's gone into it. And once it's ready to get up and running, it will get up and running. But I just kind of feel that now isn't the right time. And it's almost come a little bit too late. If it had happened a month ago, we could have been there and maybe the system would have been really, really strong. And it, it could have withstood this, but we don't know and we can't really test that now. One, one thing I'd add on the Germany point of view, um, Miguel pointed this out really well, that not only do they, do they use the evidence and follow the science, and God, how we're sick of that phrase, follow the science, but they do that with common sense. And that's the main bit, that when numbers go up in an area, that's it, they, they restrict the numbers. They, they have one game involving Bayern where, okay, right, it's got, it's got too bad in the Munich region, Let, let's shut it down no fans and then it, it started actually getting a little bit better in the days before the game so they allowed 300 in at very short notice and 300 is so much better than zero just for the atmosphere of the game and the experience of the fans and there was no risk in that because the stadium's so big that 300 fans could, can be socially distanced really well the same goes with other sports they they germany did the same with the eiffel grand prix in formula one at the weekend where they had thirteen thousand five hundred fans in attendance because it's a site that can hold 140,000 people. It's common sense. You can socially distance really well as long as you have all the provisions in place. And that's where we haven't got to. and It's where we need to get to. And I'm sad to say, once again, they're the example that we need to follow and we're just not following it. Well, coming up this weekend will be the fifth round of Premier League matches this season. And uh, while the stands will still be empty, as we've just outlined, uh, We've actually got some pretty engaging matches um, on the field, and certainly encounters on the field. Um, we've got the Merseyside derby, one of the most anticipated in years, to be fair, not least because of the situation at the top of the table where Everton are there 100% from their four matches so far, while Liverpool languishing in five. Is that fair to say, Melissa? Um, will you be at this game on the weekend? Yeah, the Goodison Park derby, there's always a joke before it, where everyone thinks, well, you know what the result's going to be. 
a goalless draw, it's sort of become a habit that regardless of how well Liverpool are doing or how they're flying before that game, when they get there, it's just a tense, um, re- uh, just some a game that you enjoy, never enjoy. You want to get out of Goodison as, as quick as possible. But I think that trend will finally end this weekend. And speaking to staff and stuff from both clubs, they think that in this really weird season where we've had so many shock results and where Everton have been the most impressive team in the league this season, um, they've got great balance. The midfield is ridiculous, obviously. Um, Rodriguez has come in and been an immediate reference point. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is the highest scorer in all of Europe's top five leagues. Everton are actually the, the top scorers in all of Europe's top five leagues as well, and they're hardly conceding. Their only weakness is Jordan Pickford. And funnily enough, they're looking at the weekend's game and thinking, hmm, The biggest weakness is probably going to be Adrian. And so they're looking to put pressure on Liverpool's man between the sticks, given their um, offensive form. And, you know, with all the the strangeness of of things in general about the season, but, you know, going to Goodison with Everton top of the league, which hasn't happened since 1989, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And the fact that Liverpool go there on the back of a 7-2 hammering at Aston Villa with so many question marks against them defensively, which has been really their strong point. I think, yeah, that's going to be a good game. And honestly, if with all this change and with all these differences, if it still ends goalless, I think we should just write that result for every derby at Goodison going forward and just not play the game. Yeah, fair dues, fair dues. Um, Jack, I'm going to give you this next game to preview, a quite enticing affair between Manchester City and Arsenal in the other headline fixture of the weekend. Can Arteta upset Guardiola again? How do you see this one playing out? I'm really excited by this because I kind of feel that Manchester City represent this season so far that it just doesn't really make a lot of sense that City can turn up one week and be brilliant and turn up the next week and be absolutely abysmal and you don't really know which Pep Guardiola side you're going to get and I think it'll be a, a true test for how far Arsenal have come under Arteta if you look at last season the headlines were constantly Arteta's revolution Arteta's revolution but he, he was building a lot and I kind of feel like Arsenal are now getting to the point where you you want to start seeing the results or just the start of the results. So I'm not talking about Premier League titles or anything like that, but just they've really forged an identity now that, that they're a team that can fight. And in these games, they need to fight. But they're also a side now that can scrape out results, which they for years they couldn't do under Arsene Wenger at the end of his reign. And especially under Unai Emery, they, they could never scrape out those hard-fought wins. And we saw that against Sheffield United, that they were able to do that. And when when they started fighting back into the match, when uh, Sheffield United got their, their goal, that they didn't capitulate. They just tightened up. They put the pressure back on the opponents and they were able to hold on. And that, that's very unusual for an Arsenal side. I, I think that 
there's, there's so many different strands to this as well in terms of the players that are missing. City have so many injuries to worry about and now suddenly Kevin De Bruyne, the, the man who's been holding them together through this and is basically the the last real superstar left standing on, on two fit legs might not actually be there because he's been sent home by Belgium because he's not fit enough to play. So there's a big question mark there. On the flip side, Kieran Tierney's not allowed to play even though he's fit because he's got to self-isolate because of a, a Scotland colleague uh, testing positive for coronavirus. So there, there's so many strands around this game that it's hard to pinpoint the most exciting bit. You know, the team selections in itself is going to be fascinating. The tactical battle between Pep and Arteta and the relationship between those two is one of the real great strands that's developing in this uh, rivalry because it, it, if a, if Arsenal get a result here, it's it's definitely the case that Arteta has Guardiola's number. And not many managers can say that, but, but they knocked them out of the FA Cup, obviously, last season. They also got got a strong performance in the Premier League that really tactically outsmarted Guardiola. And if it, he can't really afford to ha- have it happen again, especially you, know, you look at their results. The last two games in the Premier League, a one-all draw with newly promoted Leeds and a 5-2 defeat against Leicester. You know, could, could Pep be on the ropes? It, it's very possible if they, don't, um, if they don't get a result this weekend. And I, I also, um, I'm drawn to one fixture on Monday night, Leeds v Wolves. I think that could be the perfect game to actually show the strength of the Premier League as a whole. If ever we need a, a real great game to watch, not involving the big six, I'm really hoping that could be it when it stands on its own Monday night football and two really, really intriguing, exciting teams that are, appear to be on the up. Let, let's hope that really delivers a game that sticks two fingers up to the big six, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, spot on for the two fingers up and also just being a bit of a a ding-dong on the lights as well. Um, That's actually all we've got time for this week. Thanks again to Mel and Jack for their time and to you for joining us. If you are a new listener, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen and leave us a rating as well so that more people can find us. Also, make sure you're following Indie Sport and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on at our place. And we'll see you all next week. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.